you would, grab a Bible, a Bible app, something with the Word of God in it, uh, turn to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be starting chapter 3 of Ephesians today, and our, our passage today is kind of interesting right from the start because uh, the Apostle Paul is writing and he's just about to pray, and then he gets distracted from this, this kind of side thought in, in his mind. You know, if he lived in our era, I'm sure his parents would be testing him from ADHD, um, but he didn't, and so he keeps going. Uh, and he really, he really does get distracted, and he goes off on this, this rabbit trail for a bit, and it's this epically amazing rabbit trail. And, and then in verse 14, which we'll get to next week, he's going to pick back up, and we'll actually get to hear the prayer uh, that he was getting ready to pray at this moment. So uh, in a sense today, our focus is on a rabbit trail, if you can get your head around that. Uh, so we're going to read the first six verses right now, and then later, when we get to them, we'll read verses 7 through 13. That way they're fresh in your mind, just as we, we start to kind of uh, explore them a little. So uh, follow along. We'll be reading Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles... Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. God, what was once a mystery you have revealed to the New Testament apostles and prophets, beginning with Paul, and we're thankful for what has been unraveled and, and shown now to all who come to your word for knowledge. Lord, I ask that you give us patience for the many questions that we have that remain still a mystery. And I ask for wisdom this morning to explain this passage well so that your people, those whom you have redeemed and purchased with the price of Jesus' life on the cross, might understand. Uh, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So you see, the, the idea here, the idea that actually triggers this this mental rabbit trail in Paul is, is that he's suffering. As we, we read these, sometimes we forget what's, what's happening, right? Um, but he's suffering. And so we might ask that question, you know, why, why is Paul suffering? And the answer is that, that God's call on his life has landed Paul in this Roman prison where he now sits writing this letter to the Christians who live in Ephesus, a city far away, all the while uncertain whether he's going to be released and set free or if he's going to end up being put to death. So that's the, the suffering he's facing, which really ought to lead us to an even bigger, more important question, which is this, uh, is what Paul is suffering for, is what he's suffering for worth suffering for? Paul certainly believes so. In fact, his devotion to the Lord has led him to willingly let go of many of the privileges of his life uh, because the glory of God and the hope for the Gentiles uh, requires it for his life. See, in verse 2 here, Paul says that he 
assume that they have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to him for them. He's assuming they've heard this. You, you might remember uh, in the book of Acts, if you were here during that time period when we were preaching through it, in the book of Acts, we learned that Paul spent three years in Ephesus preaching the gospel, proclaiming that, the truth to those, and many people were converted, but now it's been many years since Paul was there. And so he doesn't know many of these new Christians, these new converts. And he's assuming that the gospel that he had been proclaiming in Ephesus has now been passed on to these others that have, have come to faith in Ephesus. That's, that's the assumption here. It's intentional then that, that Paul refers to himself as a, a steward here. Uh, a, a steward of God's grace more specifically. Because a steward is someone who cares for what belongs to somebody else. Uh, in college, uh, Laura and I had a friend. Laura was actually a co-counselor with her at a summer camp. Um, and her family owned this ginormous ranch in, in Texas. They're all ginormous, I guess. Uh, but this huge ranch. And they had this full-time steward. The first time I'd ever heard of such a thing in my life. And, and he lived on the property. And his job was to make sure that the livestock were taken care of. To make sure that the, the pool was kept clean. That the kitchen in the house was, was stocked. And that the vehicles on the ranch all functioned properly. Basically to just keep up this property. And this steward, you know, he didn't use his own money to do so. He used the, the resources that belonged to the person who owned the property uh, to care for the property. And Paul's a, a, a steward in quite the same way. You know, the, 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 the grace is God's, but Paul is, is simply the steward of it. God's grace has been given to Paul for the good of those who belong to God. Uh, Paul must, must give them the gospel, the, the message of hope. That's, that's his job. Just like, like any pastor is also a steward of the grace of God in the sense that our responsibility, our, our calling is to preach the word of God, to apply the word of God to God's people. And so if we give you anything different than grace, then we have been poor stewards of the grace which God has given for our calling. That's exactly why in, in Colossians 1.25, Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. To make the word of God fully known. So then a, a major theme in our text today, maybe you realize it already when reading it, is this idea of, uh, of mystery. Uh, four times in our full passage, which we haven't read all of it yet, in our full passage though, the word mystery shows up in Greek, musterion, which sounds almost the same, uh, basically, it, it means a, a secret that has been kept intentionally hidden. See, what, what, Paul, or what makes Paul unique here is that what was previously only seen as, as foreshadows in the Old Testament, previous generations, has now for Paul been brought to absolute living color because God has made this, this secret well, uh, known to Paul. See, we're, we're familiar with the road to Damascus story, right? Paul's on his way and Jesus speaks to him and calls him. Uh, but we're not as familiar maybe that in Acts twenty two twenty one, 21, uh, Jesus speaks to Paul a second time audibly in Jerusalem and he tells him, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Which is the very reason that in Romans eleven thirteen, Paul writes, I am apostle to the Gentiles. An apostle is one who has been sent with a message, and he is an apostle to the Gentiles. So then, what exactly is the mystery that God has revealed to Paul? I mean, I hope, hope you figured it out by now. It's in verse 6. It's very clear there. Uh, the answer to that question is this. You know that this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. 
members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Thus, Paul's mission from God is to announce to everyone everywhere that the gospel calls people into the household of God. And the message is for all who will trust in Jesus. And this includes the Gentiles along with the Jews. Now, um, if you've been here the last few weeks, you might be thinking, isn't that exactly what Paul said in chapter 2? Isn't this all a bit redundant? And the answer is, you're right. Yeah, it is. Uh, and it is a bit redundant. And that's why you've got to understand what's, what's going on here is just how hard this is for, for the Jews and the Gentiles to get their heads around this for completely different reasons. Because the Jews are, are thinking, we've lived in the same cities as these Gentiles. We haven't really liked these Gentiles. And, and we never dreamed that God was going to tell us they're now part of the same family as us. That's the kind of thing they're trying to get their head around. Now, I've told you, my, my parents divorced before I was in the sixth grade, and uh, my dad's a big outdoors man. I don't do much hunting and stuff, but, but he was. Hunting, fishing, you know, um, putting deer urine on your clothes, things I don't understand. Uh, <clears throat> you hunters, that probably makes perfect sense to you. Anyway, it, it wasn't uncommon for us to invite other people's children along with us on these, on these fishing trips, particularly these day trips. We'd go out in the morning and come back later on. <clears throat> and I'll never forget... This, this one week where uh, there's a little boy named Matthew that came along with us on this fishing trip. And at one point, he's, he's standing up in the back of the car. And, and my dad kind of turns around and tells him, sit down, you know. Um, and, and Matthew responded just real audaciously, you're not my dad. You can't tell me what to do. And, and I don't know why, but that has always just been drilled in my head. And, and particularly because... Uh, two years later, my father married his mother, and suddenly my dad was Matthew's father. <laughs> That's a tough idea for Matthew to get his head around now. Um, you know, that suddenly he has this new father, he has new siblings, he has a new family. That's the idea that these Gentiles are running into. Um, and, and so to get their head around that is very, very difficult. And, and it was even stranger then for, for the Jews who are now learning, as we see in verse 6 there in your passage, that, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with them. You see, heirs inherit the family's blessing. Heirs get all sorts of, of blessings that come with the family. Uh, and they didn't like the idea that these blessings were now going to be shared with, with these Gentiles. You know, just to continue the, the story of my family, my, my two older brothers were less than enthusiastic to learn that Matthew, um, you know, that my dad not only married his mother, but actually legally adopted Matthew. And they didn't like it because suddenly this, this kid, this, this outsider, had become a fellow heir with them. Now, we don't have a whole lot to inherit, but they still understood that that meant that, that Matthew was going to get all these family benefits that they kind of thought were just theirs. Uh, that he might receive a car, that his college might be helped paid for, that, you know, if something were to happen to my parents, that now the insurance money was going to be split with Matthew, and it seemed like an unfair idea to them. Things like, like that. And, and yet, every one of those things rightly belonged to Matthew because he was a legally, rightly adopted child into this family. See, the, the Jews were needing first to see this. They really needed to understand what Paul was trying to explain to them, that, that these Gentiles really were fellow heirs with them according to the promise, God's promise. 
See, they've been made such as a, as a, by belonging to Jesus who, who purchased them with his blood. And, and so now it's, it's just like we learn in Galatians 3.29, which informs us, if you are Christ, it's hard to say this word, apostrophe S, possessive there, okay? If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We, we saw that Previously, the Gentiles were without hope in the world, and, and now they are hearing, you are in the family of God. So that's, that's the mystery revealed here, that the gospel has been um, applied, expanded to people of all nations, to all who, who look to Jesus with God-given faith. Okay, so that's the first part, the first six verses. Let's go ahead and read the second portion of our passage. You can read along or you can listen like, uh, you know, old school, first century church. Either way is fine. Verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. So, so twice in those verses, 7 and 8, Paul writes that being made a minister of, of grace is a gift that he has received from the hand of God. It's not just a gift, but a gift with a purpose. It's, it's like if a parent were to give the oldest child, you know, 20 bucks and and tell her, go buy ice cream for the, the rest of your siblings. Uh, you know, it was given to her with a purpose. In this case, God has uh, given this grace so that Paul would, as verse 8 tells us, preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We don't understand this idea of, of unsearchable very well in this era. Um, Google has solved that problem as far as we're concerned uh, in a lot of ways, everything seems searchable. But when you hear this, you need to understand it's, it's not a Google-like searching. This is a, you know, it's talking about the riches of Christ. They are called unsearchable because they are so vast. They are so huge that you can't possibly know every single one of them. It's a, it's a bit like space exploration, you know, up to this point. It's uh, constantly discovering these new planets, these new galaxies, these new solar systems, and, and yet never finding an end. Never finding an edge or an end to the creation of, of God, just the, the vastness of it, just endlessly so. That's, that's the grace of God that, uh, that, that Paul has been called to preach to the Gentiles. That's the gospel for the Gentiles that he's talking about here. And see, the purpose, uh, the purpose was unique to Paul, but, but do you ever ask yourself, as far as what his gifting is for here, uh, you know, what, what has God gifted me with? for the benefits of others and for the glory of his name. What, what gifts have we received? You know, the, the gospel, of course, every one of you, if you're sitting here, you, you've heard the gospel. You know, that's something. But, but maybe also unique skills or abilities, maybe knowledge in a particular area. It could be wealth or simply empathy for someone who's hurting. 
You know, it's good for us to consider this question. How can the gifts of God to me be used for others and for the glory of God's name? Consider that. Now, question here. Did you find it odd that Paul refers to himself in verse 8 as the least of all the saints? He does this a few times in Scripture. The least of all the saints. That kind of makes you feel hopeless, right? If Paul is the least then you must be somehow out of that category. No, uh, You know, but Paul is, he's, he's actually making up a new word here in the Greek. We love to do this in English. Um, uh, he takes the word least in, in Greek, and then he adds this weird suffix that makes it something along the lines of, I am leaster of all the saints, or maybe I am less than the least of all the saints. Uh, either way, it's the same idea that you might remember John the Baptist communicates uh, so beautifully in John 3.30, uh, when he's recorded saying of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. Or as Paul says as on another occasion, 1 Timothy 1.15, uh, where he writes, Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now you, you hear this, and I, I know a lot of us kind of think this must be false humility because we've seen this expressed by other people in our lives. But that's not the case here. It's not a false humility. Paul knows, knew his own unworthiness well. But he also knows just as well that the work of redemption that Jesus has accomplished on the cross is powerful enough for even he, the chief of sinners. See, our, our sin is more damning than we may ever know. And God's grace is more sufficient than we could ever hope. This, this is a good reminder for us, you know, that, that Paul was merely a man. Uh, the same was true for, for Peter and for Timothy in the Bible. The same was true for Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon, you know, some of our heroes in, in days past. The same is true of John Piper and Tim Keller today. The same is true of every pastor you've ever known. All sinful. Well, you know, at times foolish and, and weak. Pastors get depressed and battle pride and find ourselves worn out and foregoing prayer for the sake of using marketing and methods of other sorts. You know, it's, it's the same, you know, in the same way Paul knows his own need of Christ and, and that leads him to feel absolutely unworthy to be the one uh, to have this calling, to bring this good news, this hope of salvation to the Gentiles, those who desperately need this, this stewarding to be brought to them. Uh, I expect most of us can relate on some level. Maybe you've been on one side or the other side of this, but you know we're all kind of like that lab partner, the one that you, you probably know, the one that contributes nothing helpful, and yet at the end of the semester receives an A simply because their lab partner does everything wonderfully. Um, you know, maybe you've been that lab partner, but, but, but that's Jesus for us in the gospel. You know, his righteousness is now counted as our righteousness. And then in, in verse 9, we, we see that Paul's calling is to bring to light for everyone the mystery hidden for ages. Uh, Leslie Kazing, who probably hates me using her name, uh, asked the question this week that I imagine many of us may wonder here as well. Why? Why did God hide this, this engrafting of the Gentiles into his covenant for so long? You know, why was this not revealed in Genesis? And admittedly, the text doesn't give us a direct answer to this, but I really believe that from the rest of Scripture that the reason is simply that it hasn't happened yet. 
the adoption of the, the Gentiles through the gospel had not yet happened. Because you remember that our adoption into the family of God is accomplished by the blood of Christ. But the blood of Christ had not been shed yet. Um, and as soon as it was, God gives this call to Paul uh, to go spread this news to the ends of the earth. It goes out like that. It, it would be like a new fiancé, you know, asking her groom-to-be, why did you not propose to me earlier? Maybe he'd say something, I didn't have a ring, you know. Or, or she might ask me, yeah, but did you love me? And he'd respond, you know, yes, I, I loved you even then. Did you plan to propose? Yes, it just wasn't time yet. It hasn't, the time hadn't come yet. And God reveals his plan, you know, as a, a shadow in the past. It's not that you can't see it. You know, it's clear that, that, that the groom loves her, right? It's clear that God has this plan to us looking backwards. And, and yet it's only revealed fully after Jesus' death and resurrection. I hope you also noticed in verse 9 that the word you can skip over easy, everyone there. Everyone. We, we tend to miss this fact, particularly in the church, that the gospel message of hope is for the young, it's for the old, it's for man, it's for woman, it's for Republican and Democrat, for Muslims, Jews, atheists, and well, truly everyone. See, the, the message is the same for all. Come to Jesus by grace through faith and find forgiveness and life eternal. It's for everyone. John, John Wesley I don't quote John Wesley very often, but John Wesley once referred to the world as his parish. And by that he meant that, that he would joyfully speak the word of God to absolutely anybody who would listen to him. See, we, uh, we as Christians, we have this good news. We have the news of salvation for all who will look to Jesus with faith. And, and so to spend our days in silence, quite simply, is an unloving way to live. Christian. You have the words of life that have been given to you as a, you know, to maybe stewards of. Let us speak simply what we know. Now in verse 10 of our passage, we have this, this interesting statement. Um, it says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The idea here with that word manifold, it's a weird word. It means uh, many colors and shades and variety. Uh, it's just a, it's a hard word to get a, your head around at some level. Um, it was the word that was used to describe Joseph's coat in the Old Testament, right? His, his technicolor coat. Uh, manifold is something like saying all shades of colors that exist, not only here on earth, but in the entire universe. And then the larger idea here is, is speaking of God's wisdom being put on display by his transforming the hearts of humans from, from hearts of stone to hearts of, uh, of flesh, from enemies of God to children of God. So here's, here's the thing, and I'm trying to give you a way to think of this. Try to imagine the wisdom of God like a beautiful painting. The artist paints on a canvas using paintbrushes. The art is enormous. It's beautiful. You know, those who, who share the gospel, who speak this truth into the world, are, are, are the brushes in this, this idea. Missionaries in foreign countries, campus ministers at K-State and other places, you with your family, with your friends, and anyone else who you might speak these words of hope to. Each brush is, is used for different aspects, different textures of the painting, and a side effect of this process is that the brushes, 
the brushes get messy, a little rumpled. And the truth is, at the end of the day, we all know that no one goes to the museum to gaze in wonder upon the brushes. They go to see the painting and to marvel at the work of the artist who has created it. That's, that's us. We're, we're not the artist, but, but God uses us in, in his work of creating this masterpiece, which shows his manifold wisdom, and it's put on display before all of creation. People, humans, yes, but also spiritual beings. And that's one of the strange things there in verse 10. It says that, you know, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So this is a, a reference to angelic like, like creatures. Uh, Brian Chapel says of this, the, the church is intended not only to transform the world, but also to transfix heaven. God is putting his wisdom and glory on display, not only for humans, but also for spiritual beings, good and evil, angels and demons, to see just how amazing the wisdom of God is. And all this is said to be through the church because the gathering of the church of, of sinners from every nation into the family of God puts on display the greatness of God's wisdom. This is the eternal purpose of God that is, that is brought to completion, or as Paul says in verse 11, realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, in verse 12, we see that in Jesus we are made bold and we are given access to God. Uh, I saw in the news this past week, I didn't read it, so I don't know all the details, but uh, a woman jumped the fence at the White House and began heading for the door somehow to get in. Uh, after being arrested, as can be expected, uh, she said, I just wanted to speak to the president. She just wanted access. See, the access that we have to God, the creator of the universe, is absolutely amazing. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. Later in the, the same book, Hebrews 10, uh, verse 19, we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to, to enter into the presence of God for one reason, that's the blood of Jesus. Have you ever heard the word chutzpah? Chutzpah? A couple of you, Maybe. Um, it's a pretty great word. Try to use it in a sentence this week. Anyway, um, it's a Yiddish word, uh, and it can be used both positively and, and negatively. In the negative sense, uh, it means this. It means audacity, a sense of, of foolish pride. It's, a, it's someone approaching a judge knowing full well that he is guilty, and clearly so, and being absolutely smug about it. You know, if we were to try to come into the presence of God apart from the blood of Christ, it would be this negative sense of chutzpah. Uh, this arrogant and, and foolishness, and, and it couldn't possibly go well for us. There, there's also, though, a, a positive sense of this word, chutzpah. In this sense, it's about boldness and confidence with humility. This is the, this is the way we approach God, not as the sinners that we, we actually are, but, but as the saints that we are counted as, as a result of the blood of Christ poured out for us. You see, what we're learning here is that because Jesus was sacrificed for us, and because he lives for us, we can approach the, the God of the universe in prayer and in death with absolute confidence and boldness. We can also, like Paul, proclaim the gospel to others with boldness in every situation. And that's important when we consider, again, that Paul is writing this from prison, right? You know, we, we asked at the start that question, is, 
Is Paul's suffering worth it? Well, he ends this passage by by writing to the Ephesians here in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. I mean, at the end of this, if we're asking this question, was it worth it? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's worth it. You see, the, the glory of the gospel is greater than Paul's suffering. And, and the call of Paul's life has led him to sacrifice many of the comforts of his privileged lifestyle previously. And God's call on, on your life, Christian, might also lead you to, to sacrifice many of the comforts of your privileged lifestyle. See, Paul doesn't, doesn't want to be in prison. He didn't sit out one day and think, I'm going to prison, figure out a way. You know, but that's where God has him. And so he looks around in this situation. He looks around and, and he, he looks to see, you know, who has God providentially brought into my presence? Who has this situation, this suffering in my life, put me in a position that I can speak to them uh, about the word of truth? Sometimes you and I, we need to look past our own suffering. We need to see in our, in our sufferings You know, if they have placed us in a position to bring the gospel to people or to groups that we otherwise would never be with. You know, the the call to bring the good news of the gospel to others is a a wonderful call, even when it includes suffering. There's a a British missionary, David Livingstone. He's got some wonderful things to say. But after years of being far away from his family, he was a missionary in, in Africa, and and one of the things he said was so many people speak about his, his great sacrifice that he made. And to that he responded saying that a life devoted to sharing the gospel should not be called a sacrifice. He, he says, rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger now and then with a foregoing of common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these things are nothing when compared to the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. And then he concludes, I never made a sacrifice. We're almost done here, but Christian, let me just ask you this. Is there a sweeter task in all the world? Is there a better calling in all the world than to speak the words of hope and rescue from sin? Or to show another desperate soul where we have found the burden-lifting forgiveness of the gospel. Because that's, that's our task as a church, as the people of God. That's, that's our privilege. Paint brushes of the Lord in the hand of the greatest artist as he paints this masterpiece of redemption. To, to put on display for all of creation, visible and invisible, his manifold wisdom, his great and unending glory. And so we ask that that God make us bold to approach him. And we ask that that he give us confidence and boldness to preach the gospel fearlessly to a world in need. And so then next week we'll actually get to the prayer that Paul was intending to pray uh, at this portion. uh, Before he was so wonderfully sidetracked by this rabbit trail. Anyway, so let's, let's pray.